My name is Frederick Obermeier and you are listening to Where Power Lies. It started when I was quite a junior investigative reporter at my newspaper, Süddeutsche Zeitung. My colleague Bastian Obermeier reached out to me and told me that he received an encrypted message from a person calling itself John Doe and that this person is offering data of the law firm um, Mossack Fonseca. Mossack Fonseca. Mossack Fonseca. An enormous leak of files from this company. Mossack Fonseca shows the reality of offshore. That, I think, would normally not sound that exciting. I mean, for us, it was only exciting because we have had previous investigations where we stumbled across shell companies that were set up by Mossack Fonseca. And therefore, we hoped to be able to uh, find the missing piece of the puzzle for those investigations. But in the end, it was by far bigger. To our main report tonight, the latest developments on the Panama Papers. This Panama Paper leaks. The Panama Papers revelations. It's the first release of leaked documents on hidden wealth. Arms deals, tax evasion and drug trafficking. We found links to 72 current or former heads of state. King of Saudi Arabia, the King of Morocco, Leonardo Messi. Pakistan's Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif has resigned. China's censors have blocked, deleted or heavily edited all reports that mention President Xi Jinping owning businesses that are kept in overseas tax havens. The aim was to get money out of France via shell companies and false invoices. So another day, another clarification from Downing Street on the Prime Minister's financial arrangements. Not the best press the month before hosting an international anti-corruption conference. Thousands of protesters gathered outside Reykjavik's parliament. Over the past three years, Syria's air force has rained death on more than 21,000 civilians. These war crimes have been well documented. Not so the part played by the shadowy world of offshore finance. What the Panama Papers has done is really lift the lid on the methods used by the rich and the powerful to conceal their wealth for the past four decades. Hello and welcome to Where Power Lies, a podcast produced by Open Ownership with me, Bridie Addison-Child. In this series, we'll be exploring the sinister role that anonymous companies play in facilitating crime and corruption, asking where power really lies and how we can hold it to account. At the start of the episode, you heard from Frederick Obermeier. I'm a senior investigative reporter at the German daily Süddeutsche Zeitung, and I'm a member of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Thank you, Frederick. You have a very nice voice for radio. That's great to hear. I do not trust you, but... (laughs) One thing I have learned in producing this series is that people who work in and around this area can be very cynical and mistrustful, even when you're just trying to tell them that they have a nice voice for radio. It's great to hear. (laughs) Anyway, it was 2015 when Frederick and his colleague Bastian received this encrypted message from a person... Calling itself John Doe. ...offering to hand over a huge number of documents, emails and contracts from the Panamanian law firm Mossack Fonseca. This data leak, the largest leak of secret documents in history, became known as the Panama Papers. 
It was after several days when we stumbled across several high-profile politicians, for example, um, the prime minister or former prime minister of Iceland, or when we then found the one of the best friends of Vladimir Putin uh, in the data or figures of organized crime groups. That was the moment when we realized this is not a leak that helps us to find a missing piece of the puzzle for former and previous investigations, but this is an opportunity to basically find out what is behind this wall, this impenetrable wall that we have um, encountered before. Um, because we were, we had the chance to find out who were the real individuals behind those shells. The Panama Papers instigated a huge international investigation with more than 350 reporters from 80 countries. And it uncovered corruption, tax evasion and crime on a global scale, revealing the enormous amounts of wealth being stolen and moved secretly. But why is this the case? How can it be that a bunch of passport scans, emails and contracts, piles of paperwork basically, can have such huge ramifications when made public? We'll come back to Frederick and how the investigation unfolded. But first, to understand the significance of the Panama Papers, we need to delve a bit deeper into the workings of the dodgy world of offshore finance. If you want to hide money in the current system, one of the first things you need to do is find a jurisdiction where you can set up a company without really having to tell the authorities or not having to tell them at all who you are. And the reason you need to set up a company is that that is, creates what's known as a legal person. So you can create an operation which can have a bank account, which can move money around the world, but it can never be connected to you. This is Tom. My name's Tom Townsend. I'm the executive director of Open Ownership. Before I became executive director of Open Ownership, I was the head of data policy in the UK government. Tom will be bringing his expertise to this podcast as a co-host and to interview alongside me. And I've just like pulled a muscle in my like torso leaning over to plug in headphones. <laughs> that feels it's like... Just... I had a chat with Tom to explain some of the core concepts and issues that we'll be discussing throughout the series. This is what you have to look forward to when you reach a certain, a certain vintage. Like, uh... Okay, okay, I've had my fun in the edit now, back to business. Never mind. So think about it in these terms. If you were suddenly to find £100,000 or $100,000 on the street and you decide, I'm going to keep this money, even though you know that you shouldn't and even though you don't want to be connected to it, you'd have some questions about what you have to do with that to make it clear to people that it's come to you in a legitimate way. You therefore need somewhere to put it. You don't want to have $100,000 in cash in your house, so you need a bank account. But you also want to make sure that you can't be connected to that bank account because you shouldn't have the money in the first place. The best way of doing that is going and setting up an anonymous company, creating this so-called legal person that that can have bank accounts, but you can always remain anonymous and one step away from it. So you can control that money without ever being directly connected to it. And what are some of the reasons that people might want to hide money in this way? I mean, it spans everything from corruption, from political elites wanting to say, 
derive money from a government contract that's been issued to someone they know or they control and, and take money out of the state into their own personal control. If you're a criminal, though, the key thing for you, if you're at the top of a criminal enterprise, is, is maintaining some kind of plausible deniability. So when you make huge amounts of money from drug trafficking, from the illegal wildlife trade, or perhaps indeed you're, you're moving arms around the world or, or selling illicit goods to a terrorist organization, or you're breaking sanctions... Those anonymous companies are the vehicles by which you can do that with those bank accounts, with those ability to move money around. But you can always remain plausibly deniable about that. You can always say, well, I'm not involved. That's a shell company. We don't know its owners. That's nothing to do with me. So those are the most typical use cases for why illicit activity is so easily facilitated by anonymous companies. So... There's this whole global network of these shell companies. Companies disconnected from the people who actually own them, sometimes through multiple layers across multiple borders. These companies aren't what you might think of as companies with offices and real people working for them and awkward chats by the photocopier, but instead hollow corporate entities. They exist for the sole purpose of their bank accounts, which can facilitate tax evasion and money laundering. Crucially though, there is always somewhere a living, breathing person who's made the decision to set up that shell company, to benefit from it in some way. Drug trafficking, moving arms around, illicit goods to a terrorist organisation. They own and control that company, what's known as a beneficial owner. And they might not be what we would call the legal owners of the company because, for example, one company can be the legal owner of another company. Companies inside companies inside companies, like Russian nesting dolls. Beneficial owner is the term that's used to describe the living, breathing person who ultimately owns or controls the company. Even when they do so indirectly through, for example, a chain of other companies. And this is really an important piece of information because this tells you where the power really lies behind a company. It's not often in the legal representative, although they are often the same as a beneficial owner. But understanding who ultimately owns and controls something really tells you the kind of power, influence and potential networks of connection that exist around that company. If there's an anonymous company that we suspect is involved in laundering money in some way, the question becomes, how can we find the beneficial owner? Well, Remember earlier when Tom was talking about finding that $100,000 in the street and setting up your anonymous company in order to hide it? When you do that, you're probably going to need a bit of help. And that help comes partly from specialist law firms. Law firms who, for a fee, are going to help you set up your shell company and then securely hold all the paperwork, the contracts, the passport scans that could lead back to you as the beneficial owner. Law firms like Mossack Fonseca. When you have in your hands the underlying documents that, that verify and tell you who really has set up a company, who really owns and controls it, through a passport scan or some other thing that, in this case, Mossack Fonseca received and kept private, we know for the first time then who really owns that company. Information that was only known to Mossack Fonseca and within the Panamanian jurisdiction, they had no responsibility to tell anyone else. So for the first time, 
through the Panama Papers, you're getting this total view of a whole company's operations and the amount of anonymous companies that they were were creating for their clients. But you were also able for the first time to see genuine, real evidence, verified evidence of who the owners were behind the company. Prime Minister or former Prime Minister of Iceland, the best friends of Vladimir Putin, corrupt elites in Africa. And from that point onwards, you can begin to make those links to all of the different stories from around the world, all the different sources of money and wealth that were being funneled and directed towards these anonymous companies, you can start to join the dots. And without that critical piece of information about who really owns the company, it's impossible to connect that shell to anything else, to a wider source of, of money and wealth. You are unable to join the dots between a shell company and all of the things it gets up to. So that critical piece of information, that passport scan or a letter declaring who their beneficial owner is, very much is the starting point that allows you to go and investigate this intricate web of international, sometimes illicit finance. This is why the information that John Doe sent to Bastian Obermeyer and Frederick Obermeyer was so crucial. It was data that linked the rich and powerful to their dodgy offshore shell companies. There was a problem though. The amount of data that Frederick ended up receiving was huge. 11.5 million documents. For context, the biggest data leak before this was a leak to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists in 2013. That was 260 gigabytes, which if we represented it in sound would be about this much. The Panama Papers leak, 2.6 terabytes, would sound more like this. Here's Frederick again. I mean, for us at the beginning, for Bastian and me, this was, or it appeared like an unsolvable task. We were sitting there with 2.6 terabyte of data. We are not data journalism experts. So we had to um, hire experts. We had to uh, find strategies with the, together with the ICIJ to deal, to process the data and make it available to all the journalists that we are collaborating with. It was impossible to go through every document, and it is still impossible. And then there's the, the other problem that some of the data is handwritten. So there could be the Pope in the data, but as long as his, um, his name is in handwriting, you would not find him unless you click on exactly that file by accident. So this is what keeps me up still. Uh, there, there's still this, these sleepless nights that I sometimes have when I sit um, in my living room and click through documents. Without any logic, simply clicking through them, and sometimes I find interesting stuff and stuff that I'm still working on. Um, so this is, I think, the Panama Papers will still be a resource and tool for journalists around the world, um, even in the future and even in the far future. So Frederick, can you just talk to me a little bit about um, you received this encrypted message from John Doe? Hello, this is John, John Doe. Doe. Interested in data? What was your sense of the person who was sitting at the end of that chain of communication? We 
owe a lot to whistleblowers. There are a couple of conditions. My life is in danger. We will only chat over encrypted files. No, no meeting, meeting ever. I got the impression that at the other end there's sitting an individual who does have a very good feeling for what is going wrong in our world. I want to make these crimes public. Who does see the connection between um, secrecy jurisdictions and inequality and wars that are financed with the help of shell companies. And there's a, a, a person who wants to change things, who is realizing or has realized at that point um, that there's only one way of bringing more immediate change um, and that is by leaking the data because we are discussing the the issue of more transparency in this field since how long? I mean, if I look in our archives, you can find my newspaper having written about these issues already in the 70s and still there wasn't that much change. Um, so that, I think, uh, contributed to the decision of John Doe um, leaking the data to journalists. On the 3rd of April, 2016, after nearly a year of analysis involving journalists from 80 countries, the first news stories were published on the Panama Papers, as well as 150 of the documents themselves. To our main report tonight, the latest developments on the Panama Papers. This Panama Paper leaks. Of the Panama Papers revelations in France. No, sorry, we've done, we did this montage in the intro, just gonna skip to the end. On the methods used by the rich and the powerful to conceal their wealth for the past four decades. Part of the reason why Frederick and Bastian needed to collaborate was the size of the data. But it was also because reporting on this kind of stuff can be really dangerous. It was a lot of secret information about a lot of powerful people. In fact, in 2017, Maltese investigative reporter Daphne Caruana Galizia was murdered in a car bomb. She had been using the Panama Papers to investigate offshore wealth tied to the Maltese Prime Minister. When she was killed, she was actually driving to the bank to try and access her accounts, which had been frozen by a government minister. Now, we still can't be exactly sure who killed Daphne or why, but what I'm saying is, for the people who report in this field, it's not paranoid for them to be looking over their shoulders. And this brings us back to what I think is maybe an obvious, but core truth at the heart of the world. People who hold power tend to want to hold on to it. And that leaves the onus on individuals like John Doe and Daphne Caruana Galizia to blow the whistle and bear the consequences. I asked Frederick about this. And, and why is it that we have to rely upon whistleblowers in this context? I think as long as law enforcement does not have enough staff, and they don't have enough staff, basically in all important jurisdictions, we do have to rely on civil society, on journalists and investigators, basically doing their job and revealing what is in the public interest. For me, it is not about revealing um, the dentist from a Munich suburb who does have a shell company in the Cayman Island. This is, his name is not important for me, but for me, it would be important if it, it were a politician a high-ranking politician, because I think we as the people who are electing our politicians, we need to know if our elected uh, members of parliament 
do have financial resources in tax havens and secrecy jurisdictions because those could be used for bribing them. So I think this is a, not a matter of only of, of authorities. Um, we do need journalists and civil society groups to look into this. We cannot rely on authorities alone. There's one point here about the need for whistleblowers because of vested interests and power. If it's your own government officials who are using shell companies to shield their wealth, then they might not be so keen to put through legislation that makes the whole system more transparent. But at the moment, we're also relying on whistleblowers because of the scale and complexity of the problem and the limited resources available to law enforcement. Here's Tom again. And we see this challenge time and time again. The volume of transactions that flow through hundreds of thousands, millions of anonymous companies around the world make investigatory approaches resource intensive and hard to do. Part of the issue here is just the huge, huge, huge amount of wealth involved. The scale of the problem is big. Oh, goodness. I mean, that what percentage of the wealth they're hiding? That's like the kind of the, yeah the gold gold star figure. Hello, I'm Louise Russell-Pravata and I'm Director of Policy and Programmes at Open Ownership. Academic estimates, and this is Gabriel Zuckman and colleagues, they used global tax data to uh, try and get a sense of how much of global financial assets was held offshore. And they came up with a quite staggering figure of 8%, and that's that equated to like US dollars, uh, 7.6 trillion US dollars. And they calculated that as the figure that they believed would be hidden in tax havens. So there's this flow of illicit wealth. It's constant, happening right now. And it's growing. The amount of wealth hidden in tax havens globally has grown by about 25% over the years 2010 to 2015. And to unravel just one part of that illicit flow, law enforcement needs certain bits of information about shell companies and beneficial owners. So they start an investigation, searching for that information. Now, some countries have registers which hold some of the information needed but at the moment, many of these registers are hard to access or use efficiently. In many countries, Germany is unfortunately one of them, the access to those registries is restricted. Sometimes there's a cost involved in using the register. Sometimes requests just take a really, really long time because, well, bureaucracy. Sometimes you need to be a citizen of the country where the register is or prove special interest. For me as a journalist, it means I have to prove that it's the information that I um, want does have a connection with uh, suspicion of money laundering. And don't forget that while you're going down this rabbit hole, all that illicit money is still flowing. And then there's the fact that law enforcement isn't just looking for one beneficial owner of one company. This is a transnational issue and it's not simply a case of a law enforcement official going to information in, in the company register in the country in which they are based in complex money laundering corruption cases, they're likely to be looking to piece together information from a number of different jurisdictions. Not to mention that, of course, some countries have no registers at all. There have been international standards set around beneficial ownership where countries ask companies themselves to hold on to that information and provide it when asked to law enforcement or to the government. 
Now, if that's a company that you as a law enforcement official are interested in investigating as part of a corruption or money laundering investigation, uh, you probably don't want to be effectively knocking on their, their front door and alerting them to the fact that you're pursuing an investigation. And all this takes time. The Metropolitan Police in the UK estimated that in cases where hidden beneficial ownership is a problem, 30 to 50% of an investigation time can actually be spent on identifying the beneficial owners. And that means that in many jurisdictions where you have low amounts of human capacity to investigate this, many of these crimes continue to go undetected. Suspicious activity reports might be issued, but if there's no authority on the end of that with the skills and resource able to investigate it, nothing will happen. And those clear punishments that exist in legislation will never be handed out to people. I think what we definitely need is ultimate beneficial ownership registers in all jurisdictions all around the world. Of course, I know that's a naive idea um, because there is certain jurisdictions who make their money out of this yeah, secrecy. But I think if we really want to live in a world um, without whole continents being plundered, um, governments losing billions of, of dollars or euros a year because of um, money that is or taxes that are evaded, then we need more, by far more transparency um, when it comes to company ownership. When I first learned about all of this, I felt pretty overwhelmed by the size of it. But Frederick's right that there is a simple policy that could really help. And that's if all jurisdictions had open beneficial ownership registers. And what that means is a centralised register that's free to use and publicly accessible, which holds information about what real people own what companies. If we had this, and many of the problems are currently created by the shady world of shell companies would be really significantly reduced. It would be a lot harder to hide your dodgy money, and law enforcement, as well as journalists, would be able to access the information needed to do their investigations. In fact, a 2002 impact analysis report done by the UK Treasury found that open registers could save £30.3 million per year in costs to law enforcement. Plus, we would no longer be so reliant on whistleblowers putting themselves in danger to leak information. And actually, this isn't just about making it easier to catch criminals. And I think it's also in the interest of companies. We also, at the beginning, I thought that this is a, a discussion of companies and business owners and as well crooks on the one side and on the other hand side, journalists, experts um, and transparency advocates. But no, it shouldn't be like that. I've spoken to enough businessmen who tell me, hey, we need such a register because we do know, uh, want to know with whom we are doing business with. We are living in a world where we do have sanctions all around the world. Um, you do not want, as a businessman, by accident, do business with a person, for example, that is uh, sanctioned by the European Union. And you could prevent it by having such registers all around the world, because then you could easier check it than it is possible now. What's happened since 2016? You know, you found a smoking gun, really. Like, this is the largest leak of such data in history and the largest cross-border collaboration amongst journalists to do it. What do you think has been the impact of the Panama Papers to date? 
Well, I think there was the immediate impact of seeing mass demonstrations in several countries, seeing hundreds um, and thousands of investigations um, being initiated all around the world. And as far as we know, so far there have been more than $2 billion um, being re recouped uh, based on the Panama Papers reporting. So I think that's quite some effect. But I think the most important thing apart from investigations, politicians stepping back, is us having a debate, us discussing this issue in a broader, um, in a broader forum. Because for the broader public, this stuff all sounds very technical. It sounds boring at first glance, but we have to realize that this is stuff that affects us every day. If our streets are bad, that's a consequence of that. If we have to pay too much for going to a hospital, that's a consequence of tax evasion. And tax evasion is helped by uh, shell companies. It all f fits together. We do see that this discussion leads to small steps in regards to change. So of all the stories that you found, what was the one that made you say, wow? What was the thing that blew you away the most from what you found in the Panama Papers? Whoa, there's... <laughs> There were different stages. Um, I must admit, I personally was really shocked about the Iceland case. Former Prime Minister Sigmundur Gunnlaugsson, who did own shares in shell companies that he did not reveal to the public. And there was also a connection between those um, companies and the banks that were in parts responsible for the financial crisis in Iceland itself. Iceland is a country that was hit very hard by the financial crisis. And there was already a discussion about transparency um, in, in this world, in the financial world. And still you see the prime minister using those structures for his own. In general, it shocked me to see wars like the, the war in Syria being financed with the help of shell companies. It shocked me to see how corrupt elites um, in Africa are basically funneling money out of their country every day, money that would be needed by the population. When you see corrupt elites using shell companies to funnel out millions of a country where the average individual doesn't even have enough money to pay for three meals a day, this is shocking and this shows you the core of the problem. One of the lines from yours and Bastian's book that I found incredibly depressing, um, and I'll read it out to you, um, it's a quote from Will Fitzgibbons. He's talking to the ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, um, about a meeting that happened in Johannesburg while you were investigating the Panama Papers. And he says, our colleagues here are enthusiastic about the possibilities that this data may offer in terms of clearing up at least a few of the countless affairs that have been shaping their African countries for years. Um, it's the words at least a few that really struck me in your book and led me to feel a very profound sense of depression because the Panama Papers is a huge story that's being told. Um, but also within that, there are thousands of other stories not being told and a whole heap of corrupt activity worth billions of dollars that are not being found out about. So how much is left out there? We've only scratched the surface, haven't we? Definitely. So, I mean, 
I think what we see in the Panama Papers is only a small part of what is going on in this parallel world of offshore. Um, I'm not naive. The Panama Papers have not been the end of secrecy restrictions. They have not brought complete transparency um, in this field. So this, I think there's so many crooks out there who use intransparent company structures for their deeds and for their work and for their activities um, that there, it is enough work for hundreds of journalists all around the world to work on for a lifetime. This is a huge challenge and I cannot repeat it enough. Um, as journalists, we can only show the problem. We can show the structures behind. But in the end, it's not about a, a single scandal, a single person um, popping up in, in those leaks. No, it's about a structure. It's about a parallel structure, a parallel world of secrecy that helps those crooks and criminals all around the world in their activities and in, in what they are doing in, in their crimes. So as long as we accept those structures, we are accepting those crimes. So who's still out there doing this stuff then? Where are they? The Panama Papers are, is data only from coming from one law firm. And there's dozens of those law firms out there providing the same service that Mossack Fonseca um, has offered in the past. So I spoke with several people and dozens of people working in this industry after the Panama Papers. And shockingly, many of them thanked me. And they didn't thank me because of their revelations. They thanked me because they uh, got new customers, new clients, because all the former clients from Mossack Fonseca or most of, many of them tried to find a new provider because all the Mossack Fonseca data was out in the public. So they needed a, a new um, secrecy provider. So they went to other law firms, to other uh, providers. And I think that was, that was not the aim of the revelation. Um, so, and that is why I'm still hoping for other leaks and we need more leaks in this industry still. As long as there is no major change, we do have to rely on whistleblowers um, who make public what needs to be public. Thanks for listening to this, episode one of Where Power Lies. We'll be back in the new year with more from the series. I understood that the money that goes to this jurisdiction was in a sense fake. It was uh, phantom money. Looking at moral accountability, the history of the offshore world, crime, the legal system and more. And he said, you know, the lawyers just do what I tell them. But then I asked him back and said, could you do what you're doing without the lawyers? And he said, of course, no. If you're interested in the research behind this podcast or in learning more about this area, we've also made a reading list to go along with each episode that you can find in the show notes along with the transcript. This podcast is produced by me, Bridie Edison-Child, in association with Open Ownership. It's co-hosted by Tom Townsend and additional production help from Victor Ponsford. Thanks very much for listening.